Hi, this is Ken Blanchard. Welcome to the Blanchard Leader Chat Podcast, where my friend and colleague, Chad Gordon, interviews experts helping support our vision of leaders powered for good. If that's your mission too, I know you'll be inspired by what you hear. I'll be back at the end to share what I've learned. Enjoy this episode of the Blanchard Leader Chat Podcast. Seth Godin, welcome to the Blanchard Leader Chat Podcast. How are you doing? What a thrill. Thank you for having me. I'm doing great. Thanks. We're we're so glad to have you here. We're talking about your newest book, The Song of Significance, a manifesto for teams and the people who lead them. Why, why the focus on this topic? Why now? Why is this so important to get this message out? Well, I think that we're talking about stuff that Ken has been talking about for a lifetime. Um, what's happened is industrialism is fading and it's fading fast between quiet quitting and great resignations, between people in endless Zoom meetings and bosses taking attendance, billionaires firing their loyal employees in front of everybody, bullying, so many challenges that we have doing work the way we used to do it. And we've been indoctrinated into an industrial mindset of, will this be on the test? How do I meet the spec? How do I get people to work cheaper and faster? How do I become a manager? And finally, it just all added up to me and it was enough. And what I felt like is that our future belongs to teams and to innovation and to work that matters done with people who care. And I wanted to write a rant and a manifesto that embraced this moment in time before it's too late. And we have a chance instead of racing to the bottom to race to the top. You talk about significance. What does that mean to you? I didn't put my definition in it. I put the definition of 10,000 people in. I asked people via my blog in 90 countries, what was the best job you ever had? And I gave them 14 choices um, that range from, I got paid a lot and didn't have to work very hard to a whole range of options. And the same four things kept coming back over and over again. And they include things like, I accomplished more than I expected. People treated me with respect and I made a difference. And for me, significance begins with, you have to make a change happen. It is very hard to do a job where the output is the same as it was yesterday and to feel like you had a significant input. And so if we're here to make change happen, let's decide what that change is, let's own it, let's measure the right things, and let's realize that 90,000 hours of our life are gonna be spent at work it's better to spend it doing something that feels human and important. You you have so many entry points. You obviously went through very specific questions with your blog to to get your readers, your incredible readership to help you with, with some of this insight. But when you look at the workforce, you look at what's happened so drastically during the pandemic about this, the shifting of, of people working from home and, 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 and just getting very comfortable in a virtual environment. You look at some of the, the focus uh, ahead on AI that's going to shift the, the workforce as well. Are we in a spiral that we're going to come out of, or are we going to eventually settle into something that looks completely different at the end of the day? Or, and can we impact this? Uh, There's no question we can impact it. And I'm not sure I want to call it a spiral. I'm not sure which direction it's spiraling. But what's very clear 
is that if someone can say exactly what your job is, they can get someone cheaper than you to do it. And the astonishing turnover at Amazon, the uh, outsourcing to AI or to uh, other folks who are willing to work cheaper is just going to keep expanding. And so you're either going to be in the way of that bulldozer or you're going to get out of its way. And when the steam shovel came along, not many of us felt bad for the ditch diggers. But uh, now the steamroller is coming for us. And you can't just say, please let me go back to digging ditches. We're going to have to do something more important than that. The fact is, if you do mediocre work, I've got an AI that can do it instantly and for free. I did a podcast uh, in March, and it's a 25-minute podcast that took me 17 minutes to produce completely. Because all I did was ask uh, uh, ChatGPT five questions, and then I put them into uh, an AI voice generator from Eleven Labs, and it spoke in my voice—a voice that my wife could not tell was me reading what ChatGPT had written. And so, if if all you're doing is mediocre work, get used to it. We're going to find someone cheaper than you. You talked about. Uh, your survey, you surprised myself with what I could accomplish. The team built something important. People treated me with respect. Part of that is the working relationship. And I think if you talk a little bit about the stuff that Ken has been doing for years, just that relationship between leader, manager, and, and their direct reports and the contributors, how do you value and, and, and what impact can management have on the future of work and, and building kind of that significance that you're talking about? I think the most important thing to begin with is the semantics behind the word manager versus leader. Leaders don't have authority. Sometimes they're managers, sometimes they're not, right? That a leader is doing something voluntary. I'm going over there, who wants to come? A manager says, do it this way or you're fired. And to be a leader takes more than one minute. To be a leader is this commitment, whether you're the lowest person in the hierarchy of the org chart or not, you get to decide to enter the liminal state between here and there. And so when I spend time with managers, the most profound part that comes up early is many of them realize they're not leaders. They've been calling themselves leaders, but really they're just managers standing around with a badge telling people what to do. And we need managers. Fast food restaurants don't work without managers. But management doesn't have much of a future. And leadership is what we really need right this minute. Yeah, we, we talk uh, here at, uh, kind of about the heart of the house and those soft skills that actually have some of the biggest profound effect. If, if you are advising someone how to show up better as a leader, and maybe they have a manager title, what are some specific things that you would tell people to, to try to do differently? Well, I, I'll I'll pick two out of the long list in the book. Uh, one of them is getting comfortable saying it might not work. That managers should never say it might not work. Managers need to do what they did yesterday, but faster and cheaper. But leaders have to do things that might not work because they don't know what's going to work. And the second one is to actively avoid false proxies. And what that means is that Often we have no choice but to look at the label before we buy the food item. We The label isn't what we're going to eat. The food's what we're going to eat, but the label's a clue. It's a proxy for what we're about to buy. And when we hire people, when we work with people, 
false proxies have gotten in the way over and over again. Over the last 200 years, the United States keeps electing tall people to be president. Your height is not a proxy for whether you're going to be good at that job, but we use it because we're lazy, right? That we decide the way someone looks, whether they show up for the interview dressed a certain way, whether there's a typo in their email, is somehow a proxy for whether they're going to do productive work as a, I don't know, C++ engineer. They're not related. If you need FaceTime from people leaving home and coming to the office, well, tell me why. What is it that's going to happen in the office other than satisfying your need for control that is relevant to them not working on their hours from where they are? And I devote a whole chapter of the book to meetings, not because meetings cause these problems, but because they are a symptom of these problems. And if you have a job where you're going to more than two hours of meetings a day, what you have is a place where the manager is taking attendance and showing their power, not a place where there's actually conversations going on. You talk a little bit uh, about innovation. You touched on that before, about how you're going to be going to be dead in the water if you're not going to continually innovate and and bring something different to the table beyond just being average. Um, how do you nurture innovation? How 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 does an organization, how does a leader nurture innovation? In your your, your thoughts? Okay, so let's use a specific example. Uh, throughout the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, if you bought an appliance from General Electric or Oster, you were rewarding someone who had patiently built a brand and a distribution model over time. Now, if you buy an air fryer from Amazon for $89, you're going to probably get a better appliance. But the factory that made it will never make that air fryer again. And you will never hear that brand name again. Because once it's a commodity, it's a commodity. And we're seeing this happening over and over again, where as soon as it can become a commodity, someone will make it cheaper than you. And so if we're going to create this culture of innovation, yes, we need this mindset of it might not work. And then we need to figure out the difference between criticizing the work and criticizing the worker. We need to relentlessly raise our standards, but we need to never criticize workers when what we're really criticizing is their work. Because the way we meet our standards is by pointing to what got done and saying, this could be better. Not you could be better, but this could be better. That gives people the freedom to come back tomorrow and give even more of themselves. You talk about commitments. You, you have a whole section around commitments. Tell me how people could start kind of mechanizing some of these ideas and and how did you how did you come up with these specifically? So Manad Kosler wrote a great book, which you've probably read called Let's Get Real or Let's Not Play. And the book is about business to business selling, totally different than mine, but I love the expression, let's get real or let's not play. And what it basically says is, we now have so many choices about where to work and so many choices about who to work with. Let's pick people who want to go where we are going. Let's choose to work with people who want to engage the way we want to engage. And so these mutual commitments of telling each other the truth about where we are and where we're going, about criticizing the work and not the worker, about raising our standards on a regular basis. So I spent over a year as a volunteer, 10 hours a day, six, seven days a week, organizing the Carbon Almanac. So I had 300 other volunteers in 40 countries, and we built a 97,000-word book, illustrated, graphic, designed, footnoted, with no errors in five months. And 
as someone who understands the book business, you know what a Herculean task that was. How did we do that? We did that by understanding that no one on the team was qualified to write page 19. That page 19 needed research, layout, fact-checking, et cetera, et cetera. And there wasn't one of us who could do it. But everyone could make it a little bit better. So this idea of showing your work, here, I made this, please make it better. Not owning the outcome, but owning your part of the process, making a promise and keeping it. And if you've got hundreds of people working uh, asymmetry, uh, asynchronously over time, five months was plenty of time. We probably could have done it in three because this page 19 thinking, criticizing the work, raising the standards, shipping the work, being clear about who's enrolled in the journey. We had a lot of overhead. Overhead's good because overhead is a way of saying, I don't want to be on this bus. I want to be on that bus. We wish you well, right? That industrialists hate turnover because industrialists want people to feel trapped and controlled. But the future leaders, they only want people who want to be there. And they ought to be very clear about where they're heading. One of the areas you, you spoke about is it resonated really, well, many of them resonated with me, but uh, very specifically around just that idea and that concept that I, I came to when I was on my own kind of journey about having the mindset of get to versus have to. Um, why is that so important to you? And how do you nurture that if it doesn't come innately? Well, industrialists have a mindset of you have to go to work or you're going to go hungry. You have to work in the factory town or you don't have a place to live. You have to do what I said. In the old days, people fell into the vats and they died. In the old days, it wasn't unusual for people to miss digits and to die an early death from you know inhaling coal dust. So the only reason people did that work is they had to. And the kind of journey we are able to go on now because of the magic of all the tech and because we have sacrificed our future by pumping so much oil to create so much wealth is we better have a job that we get to do instead of have to do. And that doesn't mean we're encouraging your laziness or we're encouraging your selfishness. What we're saying is if you're the kind of person that wants to dance on the edge of possibility, we've got the music playing right here. And this is the change we seek to make. When people are on that journey, what they have told me over and over again around the world is time flies, they do the work for free, and they remember that job 20, 30, 40 years later. We are capable of magic, but not when someone tells us to do it, but when we want to do it. You talk about people on their journey and you, you discuss in the book around finding your path. How, 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 do, how do people, how do organizations, how do individuals find the way forward on their own? So I think it's tempting to say, uh, I have a passion and now I need to find the work. I think it's more useful to say, I have the work, now I need to find a way to be passionate about it. Mm -hmm. That Vincent van Gogh did not grow up intending to be an oil painter. If he had lived these days, he would have been a computer programmer. And Steve Jobs in the reverse. It's not the medium that is hardwired into us. What we need is the feeling. And you can get that feeling from just about any job if the leader is present and aware and open. And so I don't buy a whole generation of people who are looking for their passion. Because I think what they're actually saying is we are rejecting 
the promise of the industrialists because they keep breaking their promise. Give us something to care about. And if it doesn't match what we expected yesterday, that's fine. We can learn to care about it. Let's dig in a little bit about organizations and about uh, how maybe they're slowly killing us or maybe they, you know, maybe they're not, but we can make some adjustments. You talked earlier about meetings. You touched on it just briefly, but let's dive into meetings. I want every, the, the, the framework and kind of the listenership for us is, is a lot of people that want to lead better. You know, they want to mm-hmm. just be better, show up better. They lead organizations, they lead themselves, they lead, you know, private organizations, churches, things like that. But meetings, are it just feels like it has changed drastically in the last few years and people are either feeling meeting to death or you know and and some brilliant leaders have come out and said oh if you're not supposed to if you don't need to be here don't be here and other meetings you know we're going to cut our meeting what have you found is there a magic bullet to how much you should meet and and how can you fix that as an organization because sometimes meetings feels like you're checking a box for the day oh yeah the thing about magic is no one ever said it was easy So yeah, there's magic. It's just not easy. The magic is simple. It's not a meeting if one person talks the whole time. Mm -hmm. That's a memo or that's a pre-recorded video that you should send me that I can watch sped up at my own pace. If you need to communicate to people, we invented these really magical tools. Send me a deck, send me a video, send me a memo, and then ask me hard questions to make sure I did it. But don't do that in real time. A meeting is a conversation. And if you are inviting more people than are necessary to have a conversation, you just burned thousands or tens of thousands of dollars of your company's money. My friend Toby has 10,000 employees. He's also a programmer. He went into and wrote a, a script that canceled every regular meeting in his company. And then he sent an email to 10,000 people and he said, no, I just freed up five hours a day, five hours a week for you guys. You can add it back if you really need it. But most people didn't. Matt Mullenweg runs a company that powers 40% of the internet. They have 2,000 employees. They don't have an office and they don't send email and they don't have that many meetings either. They have a reading and writing culture. Write a memo in WordPress and other people will read it and respond to it asynchronously, 24 hours a day as the time zones shift. They get stuff done. So the magic is simple. Don't have those things that you used to call meetings anymore. Just cancel them. When you need to make an announcement, spend the time to not waste my time. Write your memo carefully. Put it into a shared doc or film a five-minute video and do your best. Make six takes. It'll still only take you half an hour. But then when your team watches it and re-watches it and re-watches it, it will sink in and they can ask you questions later. So Zoom is a miracle because it eliminates place. And memos are a miracle because they eliminate time. But just because Zoom is convenient doesn't mean it's the right answer because you forced everyone to obey you when it came to their only precious resource, which is time, when you could have helped people get to where they wanted to go by giving them tools, creating conditions, instead of doing the obvious lazy thing of calling a meeting and making people watch you and going like this. If you were starting an organization today, what are the top three things or just what are the top number of things that you would do to make sure that that organization has significance? Well, for an organization to have significance is an important strategic conversation. For the people in the organization to do their work with significance 
is the other conversation. So I'll do the second one. The first thing is I'd be very clear about the jobs to be done, the promises to be made. And I would have relentlessly avoid false proxies of trying to use labels to pick who's going to be good at it. My policy for the last couple of years is I only work with people I've worked with before, which seems like a paradox. What it means is if I think I might want to work with you, I pay you money and hire you as a freelancer. And only after we've done work together, is there even a possibility I'm going to hire you? Because I don't want to hire people who are good at interviewing. I want to hire people who are good at doing this dance we need to do together. The second thing is I would make as many things asynchronous as possible. If we're going to be in sync, let's treat it like caviar and not waste it. We're going to be in sync. Look me in the eye. Talk to me. Let's have a conversation. If you're coming to the office, it's not to hide in a cubicle. It's to be in the same room, having a conversation to solve a problem and make a change happen. Well, if I've got a bunch of people like that, and I've done a bunch of projects in the last few years where I have, creating significance in the marketplace isn't particularly difficult because the tools we have are so astonishing. I can get something made, a complicated technology device in a factory I will never visit. I can send an email and reach 1 million people for free in one day. I mean, this is magic. And we're wasting it by making junk. And we can do better than that. As we start to wrap up our time, Seth, what, what's one thing you'd like our listeners to take away from, from the conversation today, from, from your book, from your insights? So the reason to write a book for someone like me who doesn't make a living writing books is to have a conversation start. So what I did with this book is I made uh, a free pamphlet. And if you get five copies of the book, I send you 25 copies of the pamphlet because I want you to have a conversation. The kind of people who listen to you, Chad, get it. It's their peers who don't get it. It's their boss who doesn't get it. Let's talk about it. If we don't talk about it, it's not going to get better. And so the magic of what Ken did all those years ago and continues to do, the magic of one of my books when it works is you can hand it to somebody and say, on Monday, we're going to talk about this. And that's all I want. The, you know, the Carbon Almanac started a million conversations about the climate. That's what it was for. This book, you know, go to sess.blog slash song. I got a bunch of videos there. and You can find out all the details. But basically, I just want people to talk about it. If after you talk about it, you decide you want to run an industrial entity that tells people exactly what to do, please do. But I don't think most people want to do that. I just think they're afraid to have the conversation. Some great insights. The book is called The Song of Significance, a manifesto for teams and the people who lead themselves. So thank you so much. It has been an absolute pleasure getting to spend just a few minutes and hearing your insights today. Thanks, Chad. Go make a ruckus. And thank you for joining us for today's podcast. If you enjoyed the interview, go ahead and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and please share it with your friends. The best way you can help us grow is feedback. So write a review if you haven't already. This podcast is brought to you by Blanchard, the heart of human achievement. Visit Blanchard.com for additional resources to help you and your organization succeed. Now it's my pleasure to turn today's podcast over to Ken Blanchard for his final thoughts. Chad, I'm a raving fan of Seth Golden. Thanks so much for interviewing him. And his book, The Song of Significance, is really wonderful. 
As he says, it's a new manifesto for teams. When we talk about significance, it is very different from success. What he really says is that too many organizations are run the old way, top down, all about success, getting the numbers and all. Rather than pushing for significance, hiring people who want to do the job that you're doing and who want to work with you and make a difference. And together you can really make that difference. And what I love about it is that I talk all the time about it's about we, not me. And that's what Seth really believes. So he says we need jobs that we get to do, not jobs we have to do. So what a wonderful philosophy about management. Leaders are so important in bringing about the best in people. And it starts with a clear vision. I always talk about servant leadership, and there are two parts. The leadership part is the vision, values, direction, and goals. People have to know where you are headed and what you are trying to accomplish. It doesn't mean you don't involve them, but you have to make things clear so everyone knows where you are headed. And then you turn the traditional pyramid upside down, and now you work for your people. That's where you really get the song of significance. So thanks, Seth. You are making a difference out there. Read his book and listen to this podcast and share it with people. Make a difference in your organization.